The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, let's go ahead and start. Tonight we're um, talking about baptism, so we're into the summer schedule. It has a summer feel to it, doesn't it? It's uh, hot and steamy hot, actually, today. So, so we'll do baptism for two weeks and then Lord's Supper, and then um, you know we'll get into a study on prayer toward the end. Of, you know, I'll be gone for a couple of weeks, but uh, toward the end of the summer, uh, last seven weeks, we'll talk about prayer. So, so let's open with prayer now. Father, thank you for this time to study tonight and for uh, your grace and mercy to us. And let's pray that your hand would be uh, a hand of blessing will be on us as we look at this topic of baptism tonight and that you would be glorified in it. Thank you for the word which speaks so clearly. And I uh, just pray that you guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, tonight we're going to talk about baptism. And uh, as I, uh, you know, as we look at baptism, it's, this is not one of those top drawer theological issues. Um, you know, I don't think this is an issue that you break fellowship over. Uh, in my per- personal opinion, as I've looked at relationships in the larger body of Christ, and I'm involved in a number of evangelical kind of groups that involve people that are not Baptists, I find that people who disagree over baptism do so very amicably, generally. Um, in other words, Presbyterians and Baptists tend to get along well. Do you find that, uh, especially in the Reformed camp, people with a commitment to Reformed theology tend to get along well. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't study it, and uh, I think it's going to be a, a study uh, well worth our time. So we'll look at it this week. Uh, so tonight, basically, I'm going to talk about baptism uh, biblically, what, you know, positive teaching on it. Next week, I'm going to discuss more problems with baptism or different views on baptism. We'll talk about infant baptism next week. Uh, talk about the topic of baptismal regeneration, which is the idea that you have to be water baptized in order to go to heaven. Um, so some groups teach that, most notably, of course, the Roman Catholic Church, um, but also, uh, Church of Christ and some other denominations will teach that. And we'll get into, uh, you know, a topic that's a bit challenging to work through for us Baptists, and that's the topic of child baptism. Uh, that's always fun. So, we, you know, we can look forward to that next week. Um, but uh, those topics for next week, but tonight a more positive just presentation from Scripture. And I want to start just with this um, vignette from church history in 1812, February 12th, Adoniram and Ann Judson are newlyweds, and they're on their way to India. They're going as the first uh, missionaries from North America. They'd been part of a kind of a revival movement there in the early 19th century. Uh, They'd heard of the work of William Carey, and they wanted to go to India and join him in in his work. Uh, They had four months on the sea, so uh, plenty of time uh, to... Uh, pray and read the Bible, and they made as a special study during that time this issue of baptism. Their intention was to set William Carey straight when they got there. Now, these folks were Congregationalists. They'd been baptized as infants, and uh, they knew that William Carey was a Baptist, and so they just figured if they could just study the word, you know, the, the word group baptizo and all these things from the New Testament, Greek New Testament, they would find all the ammunition they needed to blow William Carey out of the water as if that could be done. Um, but at any rate, on that four-month voyage, uh, they started to become alarmed, increasingly alarmed, as they looked at the New Testament evidence for infant baptism. Um, 
That's an interesting category. The New Testament evidence for infant baptism. What shall we say about that? I guess I should save those comments till next week. Um, but uh, uh, I'll tell you what my uh, systematic theology professor said. Uh, he said there are three categories of texts that uh, paedo-baptists or infant baptizers use to support their position. Those that mention infants and not baptism. Those texts that mention baptism and not infants. And those texts that mention neither one. Those are the three categories of texts uh, that they use to support their views. What is, what, is, what is he saying that? In simple words, there are no texts that command or display infant baptism. And so as they were sailing, they became alarmed. And as they continued to sail and study, they went from becoming alarmed to becoming Baptists. And that's literally what happened. By the time they arrived in India, they were committed, uh, convicted Baptists. And uh, William Carey was a bit alarmed because they, they basically, he thought that they would think that he converted them or that he convinced them or put them up to it. Um, but after them describing what had happened on their voyage, uh, he was happy to see them baptized, and they were baptized in the chapel there in Calcutta. Eventually, of course, they set up shop in Burma, not in India, and did their work there, Um, but they were uh, really the first Baptist missionaries uh, from um, America. Uh, Their co-worker, Luther Rice, went through a similar process and himself also became baptized, and uh, what ended up happening with Adoniram and Ann Judson is that they were at that point uh, convicted, you know, committed Baptists, and they thought just as a matter of conscience that they should communicate back to their congregational church base support um, to say we have become convinced uh, of believer baptism. At that point, then the Congregational Mission Society cut them off, and they had no financial support. So Luther Rice then came back and started going around to all these little Baptist churches that were uh, established during the time of the Great Awakening and some of the things we talked about in our revival uh, class. There was a growing but still small Baptist movement, and he went from place to place convincing Baptist churches that they had an obligation to care for uh, their Baptist missionaries, which they didn't even know they had any Baptist missionaries. That really, I would have to say, in seed form is the beginning of the Southern Baptist Convention, the beginning of the Baptist movement in the U.S. as a unifying force. There came eventually a triennial convention where the Baptists would get together and talk about foreign missions and how to support it. They met, you know, triennially every, every third year and uh, eventually split on the issue of slavery, and that's where the Southern Baptists came from. But, you know, it all started with uh, Adoniram and Judson and, and Luther Rice becoming uh, Baptists. So the issue of baptism, as we've mentioned, has been divisive in church history. People have seen it in different ways. Uh, we're going to talk about the ordinances then for uh, three weeks, two weeks on baptism and one week on the Lord, Lord's Supper. So let's just take a step back from baptism and just talk about what do we mean by the ordinances. Now, ordinances, simply put, are things ordained by Jesus Christ for the church to do. They were established or ordained, thus the word ordinance, uh, by Christ during his time on earth, and they are to be done in the context of the local church. So both uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and those are the two ordinances that we recognize, baptism and Lord's Supper, we consider to be what we would call means of grace. Now, we have to be careful, and I'll talk about uh, sacraments in a moment, but by means of grace, we just mean these are ways that God graces the church or brings grace or blessing to the church. Uh, He encourages and strengthens the church in this way. Their purpose is to help us grow in our spiritual lives with him, and thus they're called means of grace. We deny, Protestants deny, that they're essential to salvation. You don't have to partake in the Lord's Supper and in baptism in order to go to heaven. Uh, We don't think that that's true. 
Um, however, refusal to participate would be good grounds for questioning whether somebody is converted. Do you see the difference? I mean, if somebody dies, they come to faith in Christ and then die before they're water baptized, you know, that's one thing. If somebody refuses to be water baptized, now that's something else. If somebody refuses to participate in the Lord's Supper, that's a significant thing. But we do not consider that these things are essential or required to go to heaven. All right? So they're symbolic in nature. They're done in the physical world. In space and time, there are physical acts, things that are done uh, by people, uh, but they have spiritual significance. They're symbolic, therefore, in nature. This should not, we should not take this to mean that they're unimportant. Um, they are, as many people have put it, outward and visible signs of internal spiritual realities. So that's the way we understand these ordinances generally. Now, what do we mean by ordinances as opposed to sacraments? Well, I was raised myself, as many of you know, in the Roman Catholic uh, system, and uh, the, the, the system of salvation in the Roman Catholic Church is sacramentalism. Uh, and the basic idea is that the sacraments are God's means by which he saves sinners. It's by the sacraments that sinners are saved. They would say outside of the Roman Catholic Church, there is no salvation. That's the original uh, doctrine. I don't know what happened after Vatican II and what they still believe. Uh, but that's the official teaching of the church. And what you get in the church is you get the sacraments. And uh, what are the sacraments? Uh, the, you know, the word relates to the word holiness or sacredness, uh, a way by which God ministers salvation uh, to people. Um, definition off the Internet, efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us says, uh, visible rites by which the sacraments are celebra uh, celebrated signify and make present the graces proper to each sacrament. They bear fruit in those who receive them with the required uh, dispositions. Okay, well, that's what the definition said. Basically, this is how God saves sinners. Now, we as Protestants would focus much more on the word, ministry of the word, justification by faith. Faith comes by hearing the word, by the preaching of the word. That's how people get saved. So that's, you know, that is the breach that happened uh, between Luther and the Catholic Church the issue of um, sacraments. Uh, salvation is achieved by means of these sacraments in the Catholic system. They have seven of them, seven sacraments. Uh, so they have baptism. By that, they mean infant baptism. I'm not saying they don't baptize adults, you know, through, through conversion, et cetera, in Latin America, different places, though they will. But primarily, it's infants. Uh, Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, penance, or confession, confirmation, holy orders for priests, uh, marriage, and anointing of the sick. You don't have to receive all seven. As a matter of fact, for the most part, I don't think it's possible to receive all seven because they believe in clerical celibacy and so they don't have married priests. So you're going to get either marriage or, you know, uh, holy orders. You wouldn't get both. Um, but these are the ways by which God ministers uh, salvation to people. I remember distinctly their stepping stones are just things you do. At a certain age, you're going to get your first communion. And then at a certain age, you're going to have your first confession. And isn't that a lot of fun, getting to sit in front of a priest and tell him all the bad things you've done? Um, so that's, that's what you do. Uh, actually, when I was first growing up, we were in confessional booths, and you would talk through this little, these little slats so you didn't have to see anybody. Um, but the priest was there, and he knew you, and you knew him. You just couldn't see each other. Uh, but then by the time I was older, you, it was a face-to-face -face encounter that you had with the priest. And then uh, after that, then um, came confirmation, which happened, you know, about in your youth era, teen years, early teen years. And the doctrine works like this. Basically, they believe doctrinally that an individual is born again at baptism. 
That's what they believe. And we'll talk more about baptism and regeneration. Uh, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that that's what the Catholics taught. I found that out, you know, when I was in seminary. Uh, I did not realize that, which I think is very significant, okay? Um, I don't think they really care that much what you know about the sacraments. They just care whether you do them or not. You know, it really, it, that's really what it comes down to. They, they use this expression, ex opere operato, that the sac- sacrament works on you regardless of the sanct- sanctity or holiness of the priest or even the disposition or attitude of the person receiving it. Now, you know, the definition I gave you does talk so much about, somewhat about the disposition of the person receiving it, but, I mean, let's be honest. For most of the history of the Catholic Church, everything was done in Latin. So they really couldn't be caring too much what happened in the heart of the individual receiving because nobody knew what was going on. I mean, you're standing there in the church and they're having the, the Lord's Supper or whatever, and, you know, at this key moment in the Mass, the priest raises up the bread and it becomes, gets transformed into the literal body of Christ, so they believe. And uh, at that particular moment, uh, he's saying in Lat- Latin the words of institution, this is my body, hocus corpus meum, which if you say it fast enough, sounds like hocus pocus which is exactly where the expression comes from. It's like, well, what happens there? You know, ringing the bell, I don't know, some kind of hocus pocus, and something happens to the bread. And that's exactly where the expression came from. So the point is that they didn't need to believe anything. They just needed to, to go there and be part of it. So it is with baptism. Yes? Well, we certainly understand the concept of ex opera operato, because mm-hmm. that's how we think of the atonement. That's mm-hmm. how we think of death, Christ's death on, on the cross. Mm-hmm. Curiously, the Roman Catholics do not see the his death on the cross mm-hmm. as working ex opera operato. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do the sacraments. Mm-hmm. We see the cross as working ex mm-hmm. opera, quite independent of who we are. If he tells us about it, it's just happened. It, mm-hmm. it is that. Uh, but we don't see the sacraments. They don't see the no. crosses that way. No, they don't. Um, I'm not sure I would say it. I think there are some differences in the way we look at the cross and the way they look at the sacraments, but I understand your point. I, I accept it. Uh, we receive the benefits of the cross by faith, um, and Jesus' personal holiness is absolutely essential to that work. So if he wasn't holy, then he couldn't do it. So, um, But I, I see your point. Now, my point here is that I just would not advocate calling these things sacraments just out of confusion. Some Protestants do, Anglicans, Lutherans just still do use that expression. Even some Baptists sometimes talk about sacraments, and it's not a bad thing, but it just comes with so much baggage in church history that I just think it's better to call them ordinances, all right? So tonight we're going to focus more on that ordinance of baptism, and you know, what what is it? Well, the word uh, is just literally an Anglicization or, you know, an English form of a Greek word. The Greek word is baptizo, and the word in Greek use means to immerse something, to dunk something. So I remember when Christy and I were, we were missionaries in Japan and we lived in an area that was known for indigo dyeing. And I remember we went to, to a, an exhibit they had there on how they used to do indigo dyeing. Indigo is the cover of, color of blue jeans, like, you know, Matthew has here. Um, so they, the, in, it was a big indigo area. And the longer it was, it was immersed, then the darker it would be. And so we, do we still have any indigo stuff from Tokushima? I wonder if we do. But uh, at any rate, that was, a, it was a, you know, and so basically you would take a white piece of cloth and you would immerse it in a vat of indigo dye and then take it out and there would be a whole process of, of immersion. Well, that's what it meant. That was the Greek word, okay? And so bap- baptize is just taking baptizo into English. That's all it is. Uh, so it means to immerse. That's, that's uh, you know, what the word means. So the proper mode then for baptism should be what? I mean, come on, help me here, all right? 
<laughs> what do you think the proper mode should be? I'm thinking immersion. What do you think? Complete immersion in something, since that's what the word means. Seriously, if you, if you were doing something by which something needed to be immersed in a large vat of a fluid, and they sprinkled some of the fluid onto the substance, you'd say, well, I told you to immerse it. They're just two different words. Immerse and sprinkle are just two different things. In my opinion, it's what you have to do if you're going to baptize infants, lest you get accused of, ch of child abuse. You know, or maybe they can teach them to swim. Babies, I guess, can survive underwater for a short amount of time, but you know, you, you got to do it quickly, all right? And it could get kind of ugly. So I think they went over to the sprinkling thing. I'm guessing, and I'm not being facetious here, I wonder if it was because they were baptizing infants that they abandoned the mode and just went with sprinkling. Uh, you know, it could be. Now, sometimes they advocate that there's a cleansing or purifying aspect, and so they'll talk about how the priest would sprinkle blood symbolically and that that would be a, a purifying. Um, but, you know, we'll talk about that in, in a moment. But uh, I think there's a, a number of things that argue for immersion being the proper mode of baptism. Uh, for example, the word baptize itself does mean immerse. I think that really should settle it. I think if we're going to do something other than that, we ought not to call it baptize. We ought to call it sprinkle or something like that. But because, again, you're not going to find that word in the New Testament you know, applied in that way, you're going to have a real problem. So that's first evidence. Second is this whole picture of our union with Christ and his death and resurrection, which we get in, in, uh, in a couple of places in Romans 6 and in Colossians 2. Romans 6, 4 says, We were therefore buried with him through faith in, in baptism, uh, through baptism into, into death, sorry, in, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So you see how it works. There's a sense of going down under the water, a symbol of us being united or buried with Jesus. And uh, there's a lot of images in the Bible in which being, you know, underwater, put underwater is like death. You know, very, very much, uh, you get that with the Exodus, the Red Sea crossing. It certainly meant death for Pharaoh and his soldiers. And then Jonah, in Jonah chapter 2, as he sinks down below the waves, he's using language of death. I mean, he's going down to the gates of Sheol. And so there's definitely a picture of death there with water swirling all around him. And then being brought up, you know, as Jonah was being brought up, Jesus himself uses Jonah as a picture of resurrection. And so uh, I, I think that's a fit analogy to so Romans 6, 4. We are buried with him through baptism and in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And then Colossians 2, 12, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of, of God who raised him from the dead. So again, united with him in his death and also in his glorious resurrection, the, you know, immersion really does picture that, doesn't it? a good picture of it. And then there are certain passages in the New Testament that I think in a, in a, uh, in a kind of a frail way point toward immersion. If this were all we had, it wouldn't be enough. But it, it's helpful. For example, in John, um, in, in um, uh, Matthew 3.16, talking about um, uh, Jesus being baptized, as soon as he was baptized, he went up out of the water. So it implies he's kind of in the middle of the Jordan River. Um, and, and Acts 8, you get the same thing with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. Now, you can sprinkle somebody in the middle of a river, but why do you need to be in the middle of a river to sprinkle? You just need the edge of the river. You know, just reach. You really wouldn't want to go in the middle of the river. If all you need is a handful of water, you just lean over from the edge and then sprinkle somebody at that point. Yes? Well, actually, it's going back several steps. Mm -hmm. So, um, Jesus in Matthew 28 spoke of baptizing. Right. So why 
did we um, bring it down to a concrete level? And uh, I mean, we could have said, well, what he was really talking about was baptizing people in the sense that it talks about in Romans 6. You know, it, spiritually, we are baptized into his death right. when we come to Christ. So why, when did it begin that we actually went into the water and acted it out? Did Jesus? I'll get to that. Okay. I'll get to that. Jesus' own physical baptism. Well, right, yeah. but that was a different yeah. matter. I mean, it yeah. Wasn't, yeah, but that's how Matthew begins, Matthew 3, and then it ends at 28. And if you look at the Great Commission, those are all practical things you can do. Go into all the world, you go practically. You know, make disciples, that's a preaching and a disciple-making thing. And baptizing them in the name of the right. Father, and those are all actions. That just meant spiritual. No, I don't think so. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to that. I, I really believe that the true baptism that you're referring to and alluding to is the one that matters, and that sure. is the spiritual baptism. But I think we're talking tonight about water baptism. And by the way, frequently, and I, I'm grateful for Susan to bring this up, frequently when I'm meaning what generally you, what we all mean about baptism, I usually use the words water baptism. Uh, and I want to do that. So, I, well, isn't that the only kind there is? No, there's baptism with the Holy Spirit. And uh, I want to talk about that. And, you know, we'll talk about that in, in, in due time, even tonight. And then finally, the final verse that I think is the best of this category, uh, that the mode is immersion, is in John 3.23. Now, John also is baptizing in Enon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. Friends, you don't need plenty of water to sprinkle. You really just don't. I mean, so again, those, those verses point toward immersion. But, you know, really for me, the best by far is just the word baptize itself. It just means immersion. That settles it. Um, so, all right, let's move on. Immersion in water is done once in the life of a true believer in Christ. We need not ba uh, repeat baptism in the Christian life. In this way, it's different than the Lord's Supper. Okay, the Lord's Supper, you know, there's this language of as, as often as you observe this, you, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so there's a repeated aspect of that ordinance. This is a once-for-all-time aspect. And, and both of them, I think, clearly have a role to play. You know, one of them pointing, I think, toward the once-for-all-time aspects of our salvation and the other pointing toward the ongoing needs of our salvation. And so you see the wisdom of God in these two, these two ordinances. You know, there are some aspects of our Christian life that are settled once for all and never need to be done again. You never need to be justified again. And so last week when we were talking about Finney, and, you, you know, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. I, I just don't understand justification that way. How could it possibly be? You were a Christian yesterday. Hopefully you'll be a Christian tomorrow, but right now it isn't looking good. And so you need an evangelist to come and save you again. I mean, I just don't understand salvation that way. Pelagian salvation that, you know, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. There's a once-for-all-time aspect of our salvation, justification by faith. And at that point, we're adopted, our sins are forgiven, and baptism symbolizes that by being something that ought to be done only once. Now, why do I say ought to be done only once? Well, come on. In Baptist life, have you ever heard of anyone that was baptized more than once? Have any of you ever heard of anybody who's been through the experience of having been baptized more than once? Ron, what, what, what kind of people are baptized more than once in Baptist church life? Baptists, yeah, happens a lot. It's good for statistics, very good for statistics, but not so good for reality. Who, who gets baptized more than once? Well, our churches, you know, if you transfer from one church to another, mm -hmm. there are churches that require. Yeah. If you transfer from one church to another, you weren't maybe a Baptist or whatever, I don't know. Yeah, see, that might be different then because, again, you know, everybody would say, I wasn't baptized more than once. That first one wasn't really baptism. I mean, that's what the Anabaptists said. That's how it all started. They said they're, they're not re-baptizing because they weren't baptized. Infant baptism is no baptism at all. And in effect, that's what happens in Baptist life. But you know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about children. Children are baptized at age whatever, seven or eight. 
and then they go to Christian camp at the, and they're 15 or 16 and they, they realize they really never knew the Lord. All right. And they have some new experience. They hear something and they, and they just really don't think they were converted before. And so what happens when they get baptized again? And, um, you know, it, it could even happen multiple times even beyond that. And that, at that point, kind of baptism is tracking sanctification. You know, a whole new sermon series might result in some new baptisms. You know, I've, I'd never realized stewardship to this level before it's time to get baptized again. And, and to me, I just don't think that that is appropriate. I think that baptism ought to happen just one time. Now, I've had experiences as we go through the new member process, people come and they say, look, I was baptized when I was eight, and I just don't know. I just don't know if I was converted then. And generally what I do with those folks is say, I, I, I personally can't help you, but I'll tell you, tell you how to help yourself, all right? If you're convinced that you were not regenerate then, I mean, you're convinced and, and the Spirit testifies you were not, then you ought to be baptized now. But if you just don't know, then I would urge you not to be baptized again and just live up to the baptismal commitment that you made, um, and that is to walk in newness of life. Mary? Yeah. What about, um, like, adults who believe that they were baptized and that that was that moment of change? Yeah. Is it right for a, a church to try to force them? No. To well, I want to know the condition. What, so what are we, in other words, they were, they were a believer and then they were maybe sprinkled? Or they were... I think Southern Baptist churches 20, 30 years ago, if you came from even a non-Southern Baptist church, mandated. Yeah, I, I just wouldn't support that. the leadership mandated. Yeah, I just wouldn't support that because that really heads toward Campbellism and toward the Church of Christ kind of thing where we're the only real true local church. And, you know, we'll talk about that with baptismal, baptismal regeneration next week. But Campbell, who is part of that whole Kentucky revival that we talked about in our revival class, they, they basically, you know, it's very much like Joseph Smith did with Mormonism. Basically, everything that came before me was wrong. It starts here now. The Christian church starts here now, which is just really shocking. It can only happen, I think, in the American frontier, where, like, you know, it all starts here. You're going to sweep away all those centuries, you know, from, from when the Lord ascended, and they're all standing looking up into the clouds, and two angels came. From that point until you, nothing happened. How can it be? I just, you know, you're already hearing, I don't know what I'm going to do next week. We're already doing some of next week's things tonight, but um, we'll go over this again next week. But yeah, I, I think the thing is, I would not support that approach. I think for me, I want to know that it was believer baptism and immersion. I think immersion is important because I just have a hard time supporting sprinkling as baptism. Um, but just because the word is just so plain. I, I just don't know how you, how you could ever call sprinkling. So we'd have to have a discussion. And some people, you know, Mary and others that you're asking, some people just, they can't do it. It's against their conscience. And so they end up not joining a church that says, you know, I really think that that sprinkling, even as an adult, really isn't baptism. I think you need to be baptized. And that might be a stumbling block. And then they wouldn't join that local church. You know, and, and again, we don't think that that's, you know, we've got a lot of good friends that believe flat out in infant baptism. And, and we just can't do church together, but we can certainly love each other. We can do conferences together. We do a lot. Um, but uh, we can't do church together um, because we, it's really important to work that out. All right. So, yeah, yeah go ahead. Um, it goes back to something, a point you made on early on in the first pages, that mm-hmm. a person's refusal yeah. to be baptized might be a reason to ask about the sincerity of their faith. Sure. With your friends, that I guess my question really is, how much do you push that? Baptism. Uh, regarding any kind of issue. There are issues in the evangelical church where 
you know, it, we, they seem so um, integral to my faith or your faith or whatever that it, it's inconceivable that someone else would not believe that same way. Right. But for instance, with infant baptism, you say you have friends who do believe in that. Many. But yet you don't question, are, would you say you do in your heart question? I don't question their conversion. See, because I don't think they refuse to be baptized. They just understand baptism, in my opinion, wrongly. Um, and they think I understand it wrongly. So, but it's somebody who's like, I've never been through that ritual, and I don't think rituals are important. Well, what do you mean? I mean, then you start showing scriptures, and they won't do it. And, and this, I thank you for asking this, because this brings us right to the whole issue. The, the sub-point I'm on right now is that baptism should be done just one time in your life, and that baptism also is a beginning ordinance. It's something that happens at the, more or less at the start of the Christian life. So, you know, as soon as somebody can give what we call a credible profession of faith, they should be baptized. Um, and there's debates about this. I'll tell you, there's discussions about everything. Um, but what is a credible profession of faith? And is it okay to have, let's say, a catechism class for a while or some kind of theological class before you baptize? And missionaries have to work through these questions. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm amenable to it. I don't want to put too much weight on what happened with the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, but I think it's significant. The passage is right here. Look on page 5. Uh, you remember how the Lord told Philip, who was one of the seven, who, who looked after uh, the, the widows, the daily distribution of food to the widows. Um, the, uh, an angel of the Lord came to Philip and told him to go south to a desert road in uh, Gaza and wait there. And he went there, and then the Ethiopian eunuch is going in a chariot, goes, goes on by. And the spirit told Philip to go to that chariot and stay near it. So he runs up to the chariot. And quite a scene if you think about it. You know, there he is, Ethiopian eunuch, reading Isaiah the prophet. In this, and there's Philip jogging alongside, you know. So, uh, and he invites him to come up, you know. And, and they begin talking. And he is providentially reading, the Ethiopian eunuch, reading Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and a lamb before its shears is silent, did not open its mouth and all that. And he's saying, now, who is the prophet talking about? Some, some, himself or someone else. Friends, if you can't handle that question, you need to go to evangelism training, basic evangelism training. I mean, that is a softball, all right? He's talking about Jesus, and he's talking about substitutionary atonement. He's talking about dying on the cross. Let me explain it to you. And, and that's what he did. Right away, the eunuch, he explains the, the, uh, you know, the, the gospel to him, and the eunuch is immediately convicted of his sin and believes in Jesus. And so it says right here, Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told them the good news about Jesus as they traveled along. They came to some water, and, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Notice the 37 there, and there's nothing after it, and then 38. Well, that's a text text issue, okay? So an old text says, there's a verse in there, verse 37 in the KJV says something like this. You can if you believe with all your heart. But, you know, most of the oldest manuscripts don't have that verse, so the NIV left it out. But that's what's going on with verse, the mysterious verse 37. All right, but then 38, it says, And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. So the question is, where's the catechism class? Where's the theological class? There isn't any. He believes. He says, you know, he comes to faith in Christ. They have this conversation. He baptizes him immediately. You see the same thing on the day of Pentecost. You know, they're baptized that day. So there's no delay. You know, they, they just, they give a credible profession of faith in Christ and they're baptized. Therefore, baptism is what we would call a beginning ordinance. It's something that happens at the start of the Christian life. 
And so Hebrews 6 says, therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith of God, instruction about baptisms. And he goes on from there. These are things that are milk, according to the author of Hebrews. These are basics in the Christian life. These are the things that are taught to beginners. And so basically then the, the uh, baptism is something done uh, at the beginning of the Christian uh, life. Now, you may be having questions now about child baptism. Let's just hold them off until next, next week. We'll, we'll do our best with that one. I am not guaranteeing satisfaction. Satisfaction guaranteed on the discussion on child baptism. I'm not sure it's possible, but we'll do our best on child baptism. I consider it a different topic than infant baptism. I hope you see the difference. All right? They're just two different, they're just two different topics. All right? But uh, generally here we're talking about Adults, people like the Ethiopian eunuch or, you know, uh, Lydia or some of these others, they come to faith in Christ. There's no delay. They just get baptized. It's a beginning ordinance. All right. It is also a matter of obedience. It's a matter of obedience. Um, uh, in, in what way? Well, um, I think we're going to go to the Great Commission and uh, Jesus commanded that it be that they be baptized. And um, I think the simplest way to understand that command is water baptism. I, I do. I think there is a spirit baptism there, but that's something the spirit does. You know, uh, it's something Jesus does, sorry, by the power of the Spirit. That's nothing we can be committed. Go baptize people in the Spirit. We can't do that. We can lay hands on people as the, we, I can't even do that. The apostles did that. But it's something that only Jesus can do. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But it's water baptism, and it's something he commanded. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So this is clearly in the context of a command. It's something that the Lord has commanded. That's why it's significant. Okay, so if someone refuses it, let's say they come to faith in Christ, you're evangelizing, they come to faith in Christ, you're in the mission setting or it's just somebody here and uh, they come to faith in Christ and they say, okay, you know, they've understood, they've, they've trusted Christ, maybe prayed to receive Christ or, or done something like that and, and you're convinced uh, that, that they, they're born again. Well, you should talk to them about baptism. They should be water baptized soon. Suppose at that point they're like, oh, I don't like that. You know, I don't, I don't want to do it. And the more you talk and you're showing them scriptures, you show them the things we're going over tonight, and they just refuse to be baptized, I find that significant because I can show them from scripture this is something the Lord has commanded. It's something that we must do. And so to refuse is... And and here I think I want you to see the wisdom of God. It really isn't hard. You may not like public speaking, okay? And it's debatable whether public speaking is part of baptism or not, but certainly a public or outward visible testimony is, a, is at the core of what baptism is. To say, I won't do that, it's a simple thing the Lord's asking you to do. I don't think you've understood the gospel. You know, we talked about this at our, our Romans uh, Bible study and uh, talked about the relationship between faith and obedience and this whole issue of lordship, you know. I accepted Jesus as my savior, but not as my Lord. You know, 11 years later, I finally accepted him as my Lord. I don't understand that terminology at all, okay? Savior, right? I accepted Jesus as my Savior. Savior from what? Somebody tell me. Savior from what? From sin. Isn't that what Matthew 121 says? You will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Well, what is sin? Is it not rebellion against kingly authority, God's kingly authority? Yes, that's the essence of it. Jesus comes and says, come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. That means submit to my kingly authority. That's what the word yoke means. It means bow your neck and let me be your king. All right? Isn't 
kingdom pretty big in the Gospel of Matthew? I hope you see it by now. I mean, that's a big theme in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? Well, I want to come into the kingdom. I want to enter the kingdom, enter through the narrow gate and all that. Yes, but I don't want to obey the king. How can it be you're still on the outside then? And so baptism is a simple thing you can do right at the beginning of your life that shows I'm willing to obey. And so I've had people say, yeah, I'd, you know, give a testimony of how I came to faith in Christ in front of all those people. Do I have to do that? Well, yes, you do. Um, that's going to be hard. Yeah, it probably will. But the Christian life is hard. And you're going to find actually that Jesus is going to help you through lots and lots of hard things. Susan, go ahead. What if we have, um, if we consider the situation of a new believer in a country where there is persecution mm-hmm. for their faith, mm-hmm. and not just politically, but maybe personally, right. family members, mm-hmm. and that individual says, I'd like to be baptized, I, I do have a sincere uh, right. desire to follow Christ, mm-hmm. to be baptized, but we just need to do this, you and, you and me here, and uh, let's yeah. don't do any kind of a public thing about this. Mm-hmm. Is that considered, would you... Well, I don't think you necessarily. Of course, I don't think you necessarily have to call the Communist Party members to come to the baptism. You know, I think it should just be done in the local church. You know, I, I don't. I don't think it has to be that way. Ron, what do you think about that question? Suppose somebody refused to be baptized because of fear in uh, China. What would you think about that person? They just refuse to be baptized. You know, they pray to prayer, but a I'd question Actually, it. Actually, the, the Chinese believers would have a real question. With that. Yeah, I'll tell you. Ja- I'll tell you about Japan. In, in Japanese Baptists, Japanese Baptists. I'm sorry, go ahead. We saw it in Chinese Christian. Yeah, I saw it too. Yeah, yeah, I saw it too. I saw it in Japan. It's different. In, so you need to understand, China and Japan are different. Okay, the pressure in Japan is all all family and social and cultural. It's not legal. I mean, you're not going get, to get legally dinged in Japan for being baptized. But your family, your friends, all your, you know, your co-workers, it's a big deal. But it, the Japanese Baptists, they just absolutely, they almost act like baptismal regenerationists. They, basically, if they're not water, if the, if the convert, so to speak, is not water baptized, they just don't consider them Christians. And, you know, it doesn't matter what you say to them. Well, you know, they could die. It's like they're not even listening to that. They say they have time. They need, you know, they need to be baptized, you know. And so when you know, Masa and Yuda were here and all that, I just knew they're going back to a, a context where their, their conversions will not really be accepted unless they've been water baptized. Yeah, go ahead. You know, in Ethiopia, you know, it was a very strict Marxist regime in the 1980s. We were trying to hire some Ethiopian believers to help us with the famine, what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bottom line that we had trouble kind of saying who to do it, but the Ethiopians said this, water baptism, I immersion. That's your litmus test. Right. <laughs> if you haven't had it, you're not going to be on it. Yeah, yeah. And in Japan, and here's the thing, in Japan, bottom line, um, it takes courage. It does. It takes courage to be able to look the whole ancestor question in the face and deal with it, to look the whole, you know. And don't you see that Jesus is forcing that? I mean, and let, me, let me just quote something in Mark 8, 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his Father's glory with his angels. He's, put, he's laying, laying it down there. He's basically saying, don't be ashamed of me, don't be a coward, don't love your life so much as to shrink from death. These are the teachings of the New Testament. And many have been willing in Muslim countries or other places to face martyrdom for the sake of Christ just to make a clear, uh, clear proclamation. And, uh, I mean, there's many, many such verses. Now, we could say, well, it's easy for us here in America. Well, we don't get to choose the level of persecution of our surrounding culture. We don't. 
We're just looking at scripture and Jesus wants this profession. And by the way, this does tie into a little bit our revival teaching on the whole issue of the altar call. And remember how we talked about this last week, but I'll make the point again. This is the public profession of faith. It's not coming forward. Coming forward isn't it. Baptism is it. You want, uh, you want to proclaim to the world that you're a Christian. You want to confess to the world Jesus is Lord as you believe in your heart that God, then get baptized. That's how, it, that's how it's done. And so bottom line is, you know, coming forward or not coming forward, as Jonathan Edwards would put, is no sign either way. That's not the issue. Frankly, baptism, uh, water baptism isn't truly a sign either way anyway, but yes, go ahead. I had someone challenge um, whether it's really a public profession or not. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just thinking in even the examples that you get to of the Ethiopian eunuch. I also think of um, uh, the Cornelius and his family. And there wasn't really anything public there or involving the church or whatever. Well, I, I guess I wouldn't push on the word public. I would just say not clandestine. Okay, they just did it in their lives. And, you know, I don't think Ethiopian eunuch was finding some place to hide. My guess is there was an entourage with him. I mean, this man was an important man. Uh, I can't imagine he was alone. And so, you know, think about it. If you stop, stop and think about it, what effect did his baptism have on his retinue, his entourage? I mean, that was huge. And I don't know what the, Ron probably knows better than I do what the future was for the Ethiopian eunuch and the traditions. We don't, we don't have, have much on him in church history. I studied this question. There's not a lot, but there was soon an Ethiopian Christian church that grew up. So I, I think it, you're, we're, we are reading between the lines, but there was probably a large number of people there when he got baptized. I don't think it's really the issue. The issue is you're just not trying to hide. You know, you're not trying to hide it. You know, so I, I want to do it in my bathroom, you know, in my tub. Um, I think if there's a hiding tendency, then that's the problem. Um, it's not that, like I said, you don't have to go invite the lo- local Communist Party members and say, please come to my baptism. I think you'll enjoy it. You, know, my, you might even get converted. I don't think that that's necessary. I think you just do it in the local church setting, and that's public enough. Okay? It's crazy. Even in places where there's a lot of persecution, people that really joyfully, they want to do it. They want people there. They want their friends yeah. there to see that. They want to have some level of public, whatever it is, it's powerful it's powerful and i think we all have in our mind images of many such public gatherings and you know whether at the river i mean and let's, let's keep going in the scripture but you know i'll just go right to it john the baptist baptism those are all very public I mean, Jesus' baptism was very public, and it was meant to be public. Frankly, Jesus' baptism was his coming out moment. Up to that, he'd led a private life. That was the beginning of it. That was the start of his public ministry. And so, very public there. So, let's keep going. Um, Opportunity to proclaim faith in Christ. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. That's not a verse directly about baptism, but I think this is an opportunity. I think it's the first time a convert has a chance publicly to acknowledge Christ, to say, Jesus is my Savior. And then that's what it is. And by the way, isn't that beautiful? I mean, when you see that, when we see, you know, people get up on Sunday morning and say, Jesus is my Savior, I'm proclaiming him. I think that's just a beautiful thing. I really do. And uh, again, Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Also, baptism is connected with the local church. It's a local church ministry. Um, I'm not aware of parachurches that baptize. You guys may be. I'm not aware. Campus Crusade for Christ doesn't do it. InterVarsity doesn't do it. I mean, they don't do it. It's a local church ordinance. 
And so also, friends, is the Lord's Supper. We'll get to that in due time, but, you know, it's just something that's connected to the local church, something that's done by the local church throughout the book of Acts. All right, now, um, water baptism, which is tracing out a history of water baptism, is first seen in the ministry of John the Baptist. And I really do mean first. Um, I, there isn't baptism in the Old Testament. It's not an Old Testament or an Old Covenant ordinance. There's nothing, there's nothing like it. There's certainly a lot of water and oblations and washings and purifications and stuff in the Old Testament, but there's not this immersion, this, this, this baptism. Now, intertestamental scholars tell us that water baptism was administered to Gentiles who wanted to become circumcised and become Jews. So they would add an additional ritual of baptism to kind of cleanse them from their nasty Gentile life. So, um, you know, you had this nasty Gentile life and circumcision wasn't enough for you. Um, you know, you had to get washed. And so that, I don't know the truth of that, but I think it's probably true. But if it is true, don't you see how remarkable then John's baptism was? And we're going to get to this this very Sunday. Okay, you guys are ready for this very Sunday. When Jesus asked John's baptism, where did it come from? Did it come from heaven or from men? All right, so we'll get, we'll get ready and talk about that on Sunday. But, you know, basically, in effect, John was, what was he saying? to these Jews, by baptizing Jews, if what I just said about baptism in the intertestamental period is true, what was he saying to Jews by baptizing them? Yeah, well, let's use an even dirtier word than that. Well, they're Gentiles. They're, you guys aren't truly Jews. I mean, he's treating them like Gentiles, really. You're not, you know, and, and it's really, you know, somewhat like Paul's teaching, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely out and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. So you, in effect, he's saying you need, you need a radical transformation. And, and it very much fits his preaching. Remember, he says, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. God can raise up out of these stones children for Abraham. So don't rest on that. Get baptized. And they were getting baptized, large numbers of them. So in Matthew 3, 1 and 2, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand at hand. And he was baptizing in water. All right. Now, Jesus' baptism came, um, and Christ's baptism is a higher baptism. This is fundamental to my understanding of water baptism. And uh, I don't think it's eccentric, but I think the emphasis is a little different than you'll hear from most Baptist preachers. Okay? Um, I really believe that the, the, the true baptism of the Christian life is the spirit baptism. And I think it's something only Jesus can do, and I think it happens at justification. In this way, I would be different than Martin Lloyd-Jones, who said that baptism could happen multiple times after conversion, and it was a fresh effusion of the power of the Spirit for the purpose generally of evangelism. That's what he would say. You know, one of the privileges we have in church history is you get to disagree with great, great men, all right? We get to look at them and say, what a great, great man. I disagree, all right? We get to do that, all right? He himself disagreed with others. Uh, he disagreed with uh, John Calvin uh, and others. You know, we, we, we disagree. I disagree with Calvin on infant baptism. So I believe that Jesus' baptism is the baptism of the Spirit. And if Jesus baptizes you in the Spirit, you'll go to heaven. And if he doesn't baptize you in the Spirit, you'll go to hell. And I think that's about what John was saying when he says, I baptize with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering up the weed into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, this is a really vital 
teaching on baptism, okay? He says, John says, I do the water baptism, but it's nothing compared to the one who comes after me. He has a higher, a better baptism to baptize you with, okay? Now, what is the baptism of Jesus? Well, actually, in effect, he's mentioning two baptisms, right? Do you see it? After me will come one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you, plural, kind of important in my interpretation, but you, plural, with Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, I think that intellectually, I understand it as or, because he's speaking to a group. And if you go on and read, I think it'll make more sense. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering the wheat into his barn. And what happens to the chaff? Well, it's burned with unquenchable fire. So in this exact same statement by John the Baptist, what does fire represent? Judgment, wrath, hell, right? So therefore, I don't think anybody gets both baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But because he's talking to a group, it's like a sheep and a goat's thing. And Jesus is going to either baptize you with the Holy Spirit or he's going to baptize you with fire. Now, again, what does baptize mean? Back from the beginning of our study tonight. It means to immerse. He's either going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit or he's going to immerse you in fire. How does he immerse someone in the Holy Spirit? Your life is Christ, so you're immersed in it because, hey, there's no other life. Yeah, and think of John 7. Jesus, on the last and greatest day of the feast, stands up and says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, John tells us, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who, uh, who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So from an individual believer come rivers of living water. Well, that would imply you've been immersed, you see. You've been baptized in the Spirit. I, that's, that's the way I understand it. So how does he immerse someone in fire? Lake of fire, right? He throws them in the lake of fire. Jesus is the judge of all the earth, and he will immerse people in fire. And so basically, do you see what John's saying? He's saying water baptism isn't really the, the significant thing here. What is the significant thing? Baptism with the Holy Spirit. Then why baptize in water? Well, God commanded John to do it, all right? And then Jesus shows up, and uh, he is actually baptized by John. And that's a fascinating moment, isn't it? Remember what John said about his own baptism. He said, I baptize you with water for what? Repentance. Repentance. What's repentance? What does that mean? Turning around from sin, changing your sinful, wicked ways. And suddenly, as John is baptizing... There stands before him the Son of God, Jesus. What a moment. I mean, it's an incredible moment in redemptive history, if you think about it. And John knows him, according to John chapter 1, he knows him only because he sees the Spirit descend and remain on him, okay? Now, it's interesting, but he says, I myself wouldn't have known him except the one who sent me to baptize told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, he is the Son of God, all right? So I think John being a prophet, he knew who Jesus was before he baptizes him. You know, you could debate, did the the spirit descend and remain on Jesus before or after the baptism? I think it's after, but I think John knew he was the son of God before just by this conversation, right? So Jesus is just a man, looks like any other man, man, but John knows who he is. That's the way it is with prophets. Prophets are scary people, you know, you come up and they, they know you. 
They know what you're doing, all right? <laughs> they know what you're thinking. And, they, and he knew who Jesus was because the Father told him. And so John says to him, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, at the moment uh, he was baptized, he went up out of the water and heaven was open and the Spirit of God descended uh, like a dove and remained on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love with him. I'm well pleased. Okay. So John, I think before the baptism, knew Jesus, who Jesus was. I think the confirmation came in the descending of the dove and remaining on Jesus. All right. So what did John mean when he says, I need to be baptized by you? What is he saying there? I need, I need the spirit baptism that I said that you would give. I need that. Um, and so he was humble enough to recognize that he was a sinner in need of forgiveness. He was a sinner in need of Jesus' salvation. And by the way, on Sunday when I preach on this, when Jesus says to his enemies, remember how he says John's baptism, where did it come from? From heaven or from men? Remember that? And so they pull into a little unholy huddle off to the side, trying to figure out what answer to give. Quite a moment there. Say, so well, if we say from heaven, he'll say then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, uh, then we're afraid of the crowd because they all hold that John was a prophet. All right? Well, why didn't they believe what about him? Well, why didn't they believe what Jesus preached specifically about their need to repent and about Jesus, the Savior, who would come later? Well, John believed it. He, ne- he knew he, the messenger of repentance, needed to repent and needed forgiveness. He was a sinner just like anyone else. Now, a righteous and a holy man, yes, but he needed forgiveness. And so Jesus was baptized. Now, we Baptists then use this language, following the Lord in baptism. What that means is Jesus was water baptized. He was immersed in water. And so that's why I think without a doubt in, in Matthew 28 and other places, we're talking about water baptism there. But there is another baptism that comes out in, in Matthew 3, and that is this baptism of the Spirit. And to me, if I can just cut to the chase, I believe that water baptism is an outward and visible sign of the spirit baptism Jesus gave at justification. In other words, at the moment that you're justified, you are baptized by Jesus with the Holy Spirit. All right? And you're a member of the body of Christ at that moment. Then you get water baptized to symbolize what has already happened to you. And it's an outward and visible sign. I think that's how I understand believer baptism. Now, baptism was done by Christ's disciples. John 3.22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Implication there is that Jesus baptized, but we find out later from chapter 4 it wasn't actually him, but it was his disciples. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. Why was it important? Why does John make a special point of telling us in chapter 4 that Jesus didn't do water baptism? Right. Let's let's keep it let's keep it clean. Let's keep it separate. I don't do water baptism. John himself made that distinction. My baptism is a water baptism. The one who comes after me, he does a better baptism. And so I think it's the same reason why Jesus could have taken a bride, but it would have been very confusing to us. I mean, there's nothing illegal about getting married, but it's just it's strange imagery. And who is she going to be in the new heaven, new earth? I mean, how does all that work? The, 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 the church is the bride of Christ. And so just to keep it clean. So not at quite at that level, but I think it, it was just to keep it simple. Jesus didn't do any water baptism, but he sent his, his disciples to do it. And then he's definitely going to do that in the Great Commission. He sends them out to do water baptism. 
So it's going on even in the time of Jesus. And then uh, we've already covered this is commanded by Christ for his church in the Great Commission. So what does baptism symbolize? Well, I've already told you. It symbolizes, I think, the baptism of the Spirit. He brings up the issue himself in Acts chapter 1. This is after resurrection. He is spending 40 days with his disciples. He's teaching them. He's training them. He's preparing them. It's the greatest seminary in history right there, 40 days. But you're not invited. Sorry, neither am I. We get the other seminaries, and they're pretty good but not quite as good, okay? That was Jesus just after his resurrection, in his resurrection body, teaching his apostles doctrine from the Old Testament. How awesome is that? But he himself brings up here in John, in sorry, Acts 1.5, and he says this, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So that's very significant. It's not just generally sometime I'm going to, no, you will be baptized in a few days, with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus in John's gospel says, I go to the Father, I send the counselor. So he's going to ascend to heaven and he's going to send the Holy Spirit down in uh, this baptism. And so it happens. And this is a key verse for my concept of baptism and that's 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all given the one spirit to drink. That's a key verse for me. It's by the spirit you're baptized into the body of Christ. When does that happen? already told you, but now you can tell me. When does it happen? When do you get baptized by the one spirit into the body of Christ? At conversion, at the moment of justification, if we could use precise language. At the moment of faith, justifying faith, you are baptized by Jesus, using that that, that terminology, baptized by Jesus into his body, by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Uh, You know, there's other language. He gives you the spirit as a deposit, a down payment, an inheritance, you know, of the inheritance, guaranteeing our full amount. So all of these things, uh, it's true of the spirit, but this language is you are baptized or immersed by the spirit into this one body. So therefore, we as Baptists, we don't want to baptize anyone that that hasn't happened yet. We don't want to do that. We don't want to baptize infants because they haven't been baptized by one spirit into one body. And we don't want to baptize unregenerate people. We want to be careful in evangelism and talking to people to be sure that they really are born again. We want to be very, very careful about that. That's, to me, part of the passion concerning uh, child baptism. I want to just be very careful about that. We want to be sure that they're genuinely uh, born again. Okay? Uh, it's symbolic of union with Christ. And I would argue, and this is a little bit, maybe a little controversial, but uh, it's okay. But I would argue that, frankly, Romans 6, 1 through 5, isn't primarily talking about water baptism. I would, I would argue that it's primarily talking about Jesus' spirit baptism. Okay, read it uh, in that light. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any, any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Verse 5, if we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. None of this is symbolic language. This is all something that happened to you spiritually. You died. You rose. You are united. Water doesn't do any of that, friends. Water doesn't do any of that. The Holy Spirit does that. That's, that's, that's regeneration. That's salvation. So I think that what's going on here is he's telling you spiritually what happened to you and therefore you shouldn't go on sinning because you died through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, almost every Baptist pastor say, no, this is water baptism. And even I said that the symbolism is there. I think the symbolism is there in immersion, but I'm not saying that Romans 6 is talking about water baptism. Okay? I think it's talking about spirit baptism because I think that the terms here of what actually happened 
at the time of the baptism are so theologically heavy that I just don't think that happens at water baptism. I think that's just an outward invisible symbol. And it would almost imply that you have to have water baptism and go to heaven if this is talking about water baptism. No, it happened at the moment of faith. You died with Christ and you were raised with Christ in new life. All right, it is symbolic of spiritual cleansing for all of that. That doesn't mean we should sprinkle. Please don't hear me on that. But there is a cleansing that goes on with baptism. But it's really not so much baptism that cleanses, is it? It's not the removal of dirt from the body, says Peter. Okay, it's something else. It's the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It's something that's genuinely gone on in your heart. And what is it then that, uh, <clears throat> that cleanses? And there is this Im- implication in Acts 22, 16. What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. So this is the idea of get baptized and wash your sins away. So there's that idea that your sins can be cleansed by baptism. Well, that's fine, you know. Um, but I think it's a little bit better in Acts 15, 8 and 9, right there in the middle of page 8. God who knows the heart, said Peter, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted the Gentiles, Cornelius and his household, by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. Listen, for he purified their hearts by what? Faith, not by water. So it is faith in Christ that purifies the heart. It is not water on the skin that purifies the heart. You guys know that. All right. It should be done only to believers. We'll stop right here. This is a perfect place to start next week as we talk about infant baptism because, you know, baptism really should be administered only to believers. And there's ample evidence. This is precisely what Adoniram and Ann Judson were studying in the book of Acts and other places. Could they find an infant being baptized? And they couldn't. All right, let's close in prayer and we'll, uh, God willing, meet again next week. Lord, thank you for this time to study tonight. Thank you for baptism, the things we can learn. Thank you for the baptism of the Spirit that Jesus does, that he is the only one that can do. John the Baptist can't do it. The apostles can't do it. It's something that is Jesus' unique privilege by the power that the Father gave him, that the Father and the Son send the Spirit, and by the Spirit we're baptized into that one body. Thank you for that. Thank you for water baptism and your wisdom in in giving us that symbol because we are physical. We see things. We touch things. It's important to have these ordinances, and we thank you for it. Lord, help us to understand it properly. And uh, as a church, I just pray that you'd bless us with many baptisms. Oh, Lord, each one of them administered to people who have been genuinely converted through the witness of members of this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.